Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. As always, thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. It's, this is actually, I'm moving in less than 24 hours, so this is actually the uh, the last time uh, I will re- be recording in this space ever. So That's great. Yeah, so it's nice to do it with you, and uh, yeah, this Happy will be fun. Happy for your new call. That's great. Thanks, and it, the most exciting thing will be a new studio, which I think will be cool. Uh, hopefully more aesthetically pleasing, but you know. So our first text we have is Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 9, where, um, you know, the Lord wants the prophet to announce the to the people their, their actual their rebellion. And he really is pretty critical of the religious practices of the people here, as if, the, you know, that uh, a lot of the, it, it seems like they think they're doing okay, right? They're sort of, you know attempting to kind of keep the right rituals and things. And yet uh, that doesn't seem to be passing muster for the people. Mm, yeah. And one thing I like to point out about Isaiah, just as you read it, the whole book is arranged in parallels. And so if you uh, look at David Dorsey's literary structure of the old Testament, for example, um, it's a very helpful book. He's, he points out that chapter 58 is in correspondence with the first section of the book, chapters 1 to 12, and it's condemnation, pleading, promise of future restoration. It's parallel that way, so the last part of the book is 55 to 66, and has the same <clears throat> variations there of um, of this condemnation, pleading, promise for future restoration. And uh, this is, you know, a classic passage on uh, essentially uh, external religion is not what I'm after, you know, says God. Yeah, as I was reading this passage, I, I grabbed, luckily I had not packed it yet. It's one of the last shelves I haven't packed, but uh, li- literally, I think it's like there's four bookshelves shelves I haven't packed, like shelves on one bookcase. And this is from Karl Barth's commentary to the Romans, where he says that um, the answer to the question, that is to say, our desire to comprehend the world in its relation to God must proceed either from the criminal arrogance of religion or from that final apprehension of truth which lies beyond birth and death, the perception, in other words, which proceeds from God outwards. And when the problem is formulated thus, it is evident that just as genuine coins are open to suspicion so long as false coins are in circulation, so the perception which proceeds outwards from God cannot have free course until the arrogance of religion be done away. Be done away. That's a very interesting kind of, you know, that this passage in Isaiah made me think of that passage in Karl Barth, that it's not that you can be very religious. In fact, you can be obsessed even with Christian religion and miss the truth of the gospel, just as Israel had revealed religion from the 
you know, the one true God, and, and yet was able to sort of take that revelation and rather than it killing them to make them alive, it sort of, it, it kept them like the walking dead. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, looking at these kinds of passages in the Bible, there's always kind of a, a duality here. On the one hand, it's uh, the call for justice, right? There's uh, so uh, as the as the passage moves on, is not this fast that I ch- uh, choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to do undo the thongs of the yoke, to let oppressed the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not? to share your bread with the hungry, right? So there's, on the one hand, true religion always has an eye toward uh, helping the needy, uh, bringing about justice, releasing people from oppression. Um, On the other hand, it's it's about the heart, right? So kind of both those things have to be present. You, You can't you can't have true religion, if you will. <clears throat> Religio from Latin means something like covenant, right? It's you can't have true uh, relationship with God, covenant relationship with God, uh, without both an eye toward righting the wrongs in the world and having a heart for the true God. And very often, of course, in religion today, those things are w- quite separate, right? So you get the conservatives that are all about. Knowing your you know individual personal salvation, that's what it's all about. But you know, forget everything else. And you got the, the liberals, if I could say it that way, who are all about you know justice and social justice, and really in so in so many ways, just uh, don't don't emphasize or maybe don't even believe in the personal uh, salvation that uh, is is heart religion. Now, I don't mean to offend anybody on both sides of that, but just as a as a stereotype, you kind of see both those things uh <clears throat> pushing in different groups different ways, but the Bible brings those together continually. It never really separates those things. Yeah, it's interesting. I the, I love the movie The Two Popes that just came out and there's this scene where yeah, Francis Francis and Benedict, you know, hear each other's confession. And one of the things Benedict says to Francis is, you need to believe in some of that mercy you preach about. And then later when he hears Benedict's confession, he he puts his hand on it and he says, truth may be vital, but without love, it's unbearable. And he says, from your book, Caritas e Veritas. Mm-hmm. He's quoting himself. And I thought that was beautiful, both of them. It's exactly what you're saying, like seeing this this unity together, these two figures kind of held together, this thing that the Bible that never pulls apart. And it was a beautiful scene, seeing them minister to each other. Mm. Well, I always like to point out the psalm when we do the Selectionary Podcast, and the psalm response is Psalm 112, <clears throat> which is kind of discussing this very thing. It's happy are those who fear the Lord or have delight in his commandments. So there's your personal thing. But then it you know, it talks about their descendants uh, being blessed and upright, right? So you have both those things right there in the psalm response as well. Speaking of the um, the heart is established and will not shrink until they see their desire upon their enemies. They've given freely to the poor. So right there, and their righteousness stands fast forever. So you have the same uh, themes moving right along. On to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where here we have Paul saying that when he came to them, these you know Corinthian Christians, 
he he proclaimed um, the mystery of God, but not in lofty words of wisdom. He he just preached Christ and Christ crucified, and then he kind of gets into uh, unpacks that and and talks about you know that God uses the foolishness. You know where where do we? He says you know uh, where is the or the where is the is the wisdom? You know the rulers of this age. Um, it's interesting here, just that his his proclamation. It's interesting because obviously Paul is someone that is eloquent and well trained and not anti intellectual, and yet he says, you know, that's not what my proclamation depended on. It it yeah depended on Christ and Christ alone. I always read this remembering the the tradition of the sophist in uh, the Greco Roman world uh, that they were basically the salesmen of ideas in the first. In the first century world, and the enemies of Socrates, yeah, um, and and I think that's what he's. I think that's what he's addressing it toward. Um, you know, he didn't come with with that um, with the techniques of sophism. He came with a powerful message that is amazing. I like the way N.T. Wright says something that I think is very funny, uh, but very intriguing. He says Paul must have felt like uh, just amazed because. He knew he was supposed to tell people Jesus is the crucified Messiah who was raised from the dead, but he didn't really expect that message to change anyone because it, you know, he in the passage just before this, right? It's foolishness for Greeks and so forth, a stumbling block to Jews. Like, how could people hear that message and then go, "Yeah, you're right. I'm my whole world has shifted." <laughs> and he's he's surprised by the fact that the gospel actually ha- is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. Um, and, and so here, you know, he's he's laying that same theme out. And he also gives a pretty profound um, eschatological point, I believe drawing from Isaiah, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, <clears throat> nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Um, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? That it's beyond all that we can ask or think, you know, that, that there is something exceedingly beyond what we can even imagine. Now, that's what you have to believe to believe that God is good. You have to believe that God is able to do things beyond what we can imagine. And a lot of people, <clears throat> they fail in their faith because they fail in imagination. They Amen. can't see that there's I, yeah. more to it than than what we can see now and feel, and you can only look at the you know glass is half empty kind of thing. Now I don't I don't say that because I'm a somebody I'm a post millennialist, but as someone said, you're just post millennial because you're an optimistic person. I think no, I'm not. I'm absolutely not. <laughs> that's not true. I don't think that's true of my personality. I I, I say these things because I read it in the Bible and I believe the Word of God. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor a human heart conceived. What God has prepared. For those who love him, Hebrews, he who believes in God must must believe that he is. He who comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who seek him. We have to have the imagination to see that God is good, and that goodness will be vindicated throughout all eternity. Yeah, you know, another, this is not, this book is packed, but I have it on Kindle. (laughs) My favorite book, apologetic book, I think, is von Balthasar's Love Alone is Credible. And in the last section of the book, it's a very short book. I think it's like 120 pages. The, the third chapter is called The Third Way of Love. And the opening paragraph is neither, or the first part of the paragraph is, neither religious philosophy nor existence can provide the criterion 
for the genuineness of Christianity. In philosophy, man discovers what is humanly knowable about the depths of being. In existence, man lives out what is humanly livable. But Christianity disappears the moment it allows itself to be dissolved into a transcendental precondition of human self-understanding and thinking or or living, knowledge or deed. It's interesting because the first sentence of the book, I think, is something like from, you know, the early, earliest time in the church, the, 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 the church has tried to figure out how the logos, you know, the word, the eternal one, fits with the logoi of the world, the words of the world. He just looks at, like, you know, he spends like 60 pages or something looking at all the failures to sort of re- fold Christianity into either uh, Greco-Roman philosophy or religion or enlightenment theories and things like that. And, and, he, and then he just talks about the third way of love and how really, you know, the only analogy, and he's like, it's a broken analogy, but it's still, you know, it's, it, but it's something like love and beauty, that what you find beautiful, you come to love, and what you love, you come to find beautiful. And then once you find the, the crucified Christ, you realize you've never even loved as a human, you know, because human love is so, but, but it's, it's sort of uh, like Irenaeus says, the mm-hmm. God is light, but unlike any other light we've ever known. But he thinks that this, the, the power of the crucified Christ, when it melts us and trans- changes the way we see it. And again, he's not an anti-intellectual argument. He's not an anti-intellectual. I mean, he's, but, he's, but he's saying that, you know, the second we try to take things on the human side and make them sort of the, um, the presuppositions that, that drive the gospel, the whole thing just dissipates. Mm. Well, I'd say too, you know, when you say, talk about love, I, I really like the, the thought. I really love the book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's one of the most profound books I think ever written. I would put it up there with anything else <laughs> about eternity and our relationship and character. And, uh, he has his, you know, his little vignette of George MacDonald, his literary hero in there. Um, but at one point he says something like love, you know, in, in, on this side of eternity, most of what we call love is the need to feel love. You know, most, most of what we think yeah. is love is our desire to be loved. Um, it's just like, a, just in a way, a, a very wonderful book. If you haven't read that or read it in a while, that's worth going back over it. But I do want to say one thing else about First Corinthians passage here. He's moving to the spiritual reality behind um, our experience, like for what human being knows, <clears throat> except the human spirit that is within. So also no one understands God except the spirit of God. So he's getting to this kind of metaphysical reality behind uh, the masks, if you will. And those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's spirit for their foolishness to them. And they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things. And they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. There's, there's something there where he's, he's driving them to a deeper understanding of what it means to, to live. And, you know, again, we're not, I would say we're not grown up germs. We're not biological machines that just popped out of a, you know, a naturalistic, uh, materialistic void. Uh, we are spiritual beings. We, we have a, an unquantifiable, unknown, uh, basis to our persons or to our personhood. And so it is, of course, that God has revealed himself as a triune and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's interesting you said, because, you know, early on in the church dogmatics, Bart talks about the Trinity and he talks about God as, as revealer, the Father, 
revelation, the Son, and revealedness, the Spirit. So even when the human being receives the gospel, it's in the Spirit, it's in the revealedness. So God, even in the reception, God is still the Lord. You know, the, the revealedness is the Spirit. So God is the Lord of the whole thing. He's Lord as revealer, Lord as revelation, and Lord is revealedness. Now, do I get to get equal airtime by quoting Cornelius Van Tuyen yeah, every time you quote because, Bart? <laughs> you know what's funny about those two, those two is I think that they both are presuppositionalists in their own way. But And by that, for people that don't know that tradition, that the idea that, you know, there's a certain school of arguing for the Christian faith that thinks you sort of start with common human reason and stuff and, and build from there. And then there's another view that says, no, 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 no. It's faith-seeking understanding that you have to start with faith and, and, the, and the presuppositions that God is is Lord and Christ, you know, is the revelation and these things. And then you can reason out from there that unless you start from that place, reason like he, autonomous human reason will only ever yeah. worship autonomous human reason. And, and Bart and Van Til, as much as they were antithetical on many things, they both were in agreement on that point. Yeah, that's right. It, actually, the whole, I was, I made a comment to this effect in my sermon last Sunday, but the whole of 20th century philosophy and, and epistemology that developed by the end of the 20th century, um, it, it all sort of vindicated Van Til's outlook, and to that, to to the same extent he shares it with Bart. Bart's outlook that uh, knowledge is just not this kind of thing where you can have these completely certain foundations that are unassailable, it's and then you neutral. can actually yeah. bu- build a system on top of it. I mean, that's the whole of the last uh, many decades has 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 shown. Well, I say has shown, but I'll say that's been the the more dominant uh, way of thinking uh, of of rationality and of epistemology is to, to do that. And so, you know, Van Til was uh, very much ahead of the game on that. You know, he's writing. No, about absolutely. This in the yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think you're right about that. Now it's. I mean, yeah, exactly. You'd have to find. It'd be a, a, a it'd be a minority position that would dispute that right now, like yeah. a distinct minority right. anywhere in in public well, intellectual it, life. It, it's gone in a lot of different ways, and I guess this is probably not the time or place to do do a whole lesson on a, a 20th century epistemology. But I will say this: that like Alvin Plantinga, who's very well known and who's been an, a, just a phenomenal uh, philosopher. Versus uh, this this other kind of presuppositional tradition, you end up with with two different with two different directions on that. But what you do end up with is uh, we we're not we're no longer Cartesian. We're no longer thinking that there's these unassailable foundations that you can figure out uh, and then build upon them in, with some kind of rational neutrality. I think that's just uh, not possible. And you know, a lot of what we read uh, here in First Corinthians, for example, it, it's, it's very consistent with that. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Um, I mean, there's a sense in which the the whole claim of <clears throat> Christian faith and Christian rationality starts from a faith commitment, not from a you know human rationality commitment. Now, I yeah. am I am yeah. very much for rationality. <laughs> I am, but no, no, no. But but I think. But, how do you I account think... for rationality? Like this is Van. By the way, just short. I'll, I won't I won't preach about this anymore. But a short little point. Here's what Van Dill would do. He would say, "Look, you think you're rational. Great. Account for your rationality. Right." Okay, if, if everything you're a is just matter in motion, right. how do you come up rationality. with rationality from that? So that's a that's a presuppositional or sometimes called a transcendental way of reasoning. You reason from accounting for something. But at any rate, I'm sure we need to move to the gospel here. So yeah. Lord, now won't you tell us? Tell us what does it 
Till at the end of every hard-earned day People find some reason to believe so. Yeah, let's move to the gospel <laughs> reading. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 through 20. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if it loses its taste, what do you do? And you're light of the world, but that, you know, you can't hide it under a bushel. And then he talks about not coming to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And it's interesting here because I think, one of the things I think that's interesting, right, is you have certain kinds of people in the church that think the church's primary job is to be light, to be a countercultural witness, right? And you got other people that think the church's job is to be salt and to get in there and sort of for the common good and, and to, and to work for the betterment of society and, 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 so, and it's interesting because he says it's both. Like it's not, it's not either or that you're called to be this distinctive light and also salt is preservative, right? It gets yeah. into the food. And so I think oftentimes the yeah. church pits one part of Jesus or, or one part of biblical truth, as you were saying about the Isaiah reading against the other. And here Jesus is saying that, you know, the church is, is called to be both. It's called to be distinctive yeah. and in solidarity. <clears throat> yeah. And I've, I've, uh, in the last few years, I've really gotten into pickling, I guess that's been a craze, but I, I make sauerkraut and kimchi and, you know, uh, I love pickles kimchi. and all that stuff. And I, I love doing it, and and I'm and I'm kind of known in my church where I'll show, always show up at a fellowship meal with jars of different kinds of pickle things, and so. But the the critical thing, of course, is you have to have salt, right? Salt is the pretty much the critical ingredient to make anything pickled. And what's amazing, you know, from the ancient world, we we have refrigerators and all this, you know, modern convenience. But not only that, just conserving food. Well, I mean, in the past, the way you conserve food is before refrigeration is you put salt on it. I mean, you dump it in salt. Uh, you take cabbage and you put it in a big crock and you put salt on it and then it stays for, you know, months and months and maybe even years and years. This is what you do with, you know, you take pork, you know, you very goes rancid very quick in a warm climate and you dip it, you know, you drop it in salt and then now you got your prosciutto, <laughs> you know, um, it, this is just what they did in the, in the ancient world. And so salt is very much strongly, I mean, it's obviously taste is, is uh, an important thing. Um, but it's, it's very much a preservative. And so that, that image of <clears throat> preservation is very interesting. It's I like to, too. my, uh, my doctoral advisor, Daryl Guter was the guy that invented the term missional. And it, it, you know, he, he was one of the co-authors of missional church and which is a book that is trying to say, hey, look, as Christendom, as we get into a post-Christian, post-Christendom culture, the church does need to recover its sort of distinctive light and witness. But he used to always say two things. He used to say, God, let's always remember, he used to talk about gospel reductionisms. And he used to say, let's remember, there's always gospel in gospel reductionisms. And the other thing he used to say is, I thank God that I live in a culture that's even superficially influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the song, mm -hmm. like the little things like that, yeah. that new book by Tom Holland that came out dominion where he just talks about all these things in Western culture that are so distinctive. Um, the idea that we think that, that, you know, the weak or the marginal have a place in society. There's so much about Western culture that yeah. is that we, that the right. things that we would celebrate, like the things that we would say, Hey, these are, these are really good. They're just uniquely shaped by, the, by the salt preservative you know, aspect of, of Christianity. It's, it's just like your favorite political commentator and thing. Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh D'Souza. Who, who wrote What's So Great About Christianity? But any of those books that basically show 
that it is the gospel permeating society that brought down all kinds of very evil things in society, slavery being among them, um, as well as, you know, many other institutions. I think you see that. I want to comment on the last part of this, too. Um, do not think we've I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. There's a number of uh, interesting things from this from this passage. I would say this passage is the most important passage for Christian ethics in the New Testament. Okay, well, you can can you explain that? Well, because I just think like Jesus here is saying, I'm not taking the law down; I'm ratcheting it up so that even intention. It's like it's almost like Immanuel Kant, right? Like, you know, if you're doing your duty, but like doing it for 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 impure motives, he's saying like. You, you know, it's not just enough to do the right thing, that that, that you, you could do the right thing with the wrong motives and be indicted, or you can just have uh, bad motives in your heart. And it's like when Jesus says, it's not what goes into you that de- defiles you, but what comes out from the heart is where the problem starts. And I think that that, yeah. it's two things. A, it, it makes us realize that we're, as if you're a real, if you take this seriously, you don't just repent of your ver- of your vices, you repent of your virtues, because you know even those are tainted. And the second thing, it reminds you that all, all of us are only justified by God's grace. And so like Luther says, God doesn't need our works, our neighbor needs them. And so once you know that your only hope is in the justifying grace of God, because none of us, all all of us can only plead mercy, even our best day, then you then you can really do something nice because you're like, well, hey, I'm not earning any points in heaven for this. Uh, I can stop knowing that and I can be free to serve, actually love uh, God through loving my neighbor because, you know, it's only when you're beloved first that then you can go out and really love freely. Hmm. I want to uh, drop, if you will, some uh, kind of interesting reformational historical stuff on this, you know, in this discussion. Um, in my tradition, reform tradition, there has been a, uh, since, the, since the 70s, there's a rise of very far to the right uh, thinkers, and and one of them wrote a wrote an important book called Theonomy and Christian Ethics. His name's Greg Bonson, and he used this very passage as his justification. And what he argued, which was super duper controversial, became very much a a uh, big controversy in conservative Reformed churches. Is he wrote Jesus here is laying out his his uh, interpretive principle. I did not come to abolish any part of the law of the prophets. I didn't come in order to change anything from the Old Testament. Therefore, everything is binding from the Old Testament until we read in the New Testament that it's not binding. And that's called theonomy. And so the particularly the most uh, uh, interesting, uh, you know, theses come on the, on the law, what some people call the case laws. So, uh, you know, capital punishment, capital punishment for, homosexual activity, capital punishment for adultery, capital punishment for blasphemy, right? That's the most controversial part of it. And there was lots of ink spilled on this topic. And um, as, as that, you know, discussion continued to happen, do, you know, basically, do you, do you obey the Old Testament law as it applies to society? Um, the, again, that's so much, so controversial and everything else. But, but I think that it, within the group of folks that I'm part of, at least, thinking about that, the real key thing here is until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And the, my way of thinking about that is 
heaven and earth did pass away. The yeah. resurrection, there's new creation. So when Paul would say in Galatians, we're not under Torah, or that in the fullness of time, God sent his son so that we could be delivered from Torah um, and delivered from the stoichia, the elements of the world. What Paul is saying is the resurrection of Jesus brings a new yeah. new world in. There's a new, there is a new world. So, you know, to answer the question, to how, what do you do with the Old Testament laws? The answer to that, I think, from a fully mature Christian point of view is, we're not under the Old Testament laws. They're all wisdom to us to give us guidance, but we're not under Torah. We're not under uh, these laws because a new heavens and earth have it, passed. N.T. Wright has this great example. Like it was, you know, when we used to have the space shuttles, and the space shuttle would need the rocket boosters to get out of orbit. And that we, they were good. They got us out of orbit. But he said, you know, it would be strange to see the astronauts then, after they got out of orbit, getting in their spacesuits and trying to get the rocket boosters back. <laughs> Because yeah. and it's the same thing, like all of the law is basically about loving God and lo loving other people. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, we, you know, we don't need to go get the rocket. They're not bad. We just don't need to go get them back, you know, it, yeah. it, but, but it is this thing that like, if it, it, and again, it begins and ends with the love of God. And, and we realize as sinners, our only hope is the love of God. And when we realize that God is the friend of sinners, then we can go serve other sinners without, you know, without mixed motives in the sense of like, Hey, I, I'm, 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 as Luther says, I can be Lord of all because no one can take God's love away from me and servant of all because in that freedom, I can, I can really serve. Mm. Let me say one other thing about this passage. Um, just by way of the kind of whole Sermon on the Mount uh, idea, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Jonathan Pennington, a scholar, I think he's at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he's an expert on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He made the argument at a conference I was at uh, a year ago or so, when he said, look, the word blessed, makarios, that word is not the same as eulageo, which is also blessing, because in English, we don't distinguish between divine blessing yeah. and between the blessing of observing someone else. It's the, And he said, in almost every language, he said he checked about 25 languages, there is this distinction. So you know if it's God blessing you or you know if you're just saying a person is flourishing. And so he ends up saying, look, the Sermon on the Mount is it's right at the intersection between the Greco-Roman literature of how to live a good life and the Hebraic wisdom literature of how to live well, like Proverbs and so forth. And it's here's how you here's how human beings flourish. And of course, it's very proverbial. You know, it's you're if you mourn, you'll be comforted. Uh, if you if you are impoverished in spirit, you will receive the greatest thing, the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's those proverbial kinds of images. So it's wisdom like literature, and I think that's a very interesting way of reading it. Yeah, when you yeah, get and also and also the preacher is the sermon here, right? Like Jesus is the blessed one, and all these things. Like he is the peacemaker. He is the one who suffers for righteousness. He is, you know, the preacher here is the sermon, just like the king is the kingdom. Yeah. One of the things I did last week on the first part of this, the Beatitudes, is I just went through and showed how Jesus is the fulfillment of of each of those things. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus was persecuted. And the twist on that one is is to point out that he doesn't get the blessing, you know, on this side of of, yeah. of death, right? He he was he was persecuted, but he wasn't comforted. His father 
was forsake, you know, forsook him. My God, my God. So just take it to the cross, you know, take all those things to the cross and say, Jesus didn't receive, uh, this blessing because he wanted to save you. You know, he, he received the pain and the wrath because he wanted to give you life. That's Amen the, to that. And I pray that for all our listeners that uh, on the Lord's Day, that that's what's, whatever texts they're preaching through, that that's what shines through. Thanks, Amen. my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today, and thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.